Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Titus chapter 3, considering again verses 4 to 7. What we will be doing this week and the next two weeks is expanding on the topic of the Holy Spirit. We will see mentioned in this text of verses 4 to 7, the Holy Spirit, and especially the Holy Spirit in salvation, which we've already done, we've already talked about. But uh, it was just on my heart and mine to, to do a little more extended series about the Holy Spirit. I've been kind of looking for this opportunity, and this seemed like as good a time as any. So we'll, we'll continue to use this text as our kind of springboard, jumping off text. But this week and the next two will be not so much having to do with that aspect of the Holy Spirit, meaning the Holy Spirit in salvation, um, in fact, the way it's going to break up here is today we will be focusing on the person of the Holy Spirit. And we'll get a little background and a little historical context with uh, the Holy Spirit in regards to the teachings throughout uh, church history. And, um, and then this will be followed by next week we'll talk about the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament because that's a thing that I think we all often wonder about. Versus the workings of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament, we'll focus on the gospel aspects of the Holy Spirit. And then the following week will be um, the Holy Spirit in the life of you, a believer. And especially some of the more New Testament teachings regarding the Holy Spirit. And so that is the plan. That being said, why don't you go ahead and stand with me please, if you're able. And uh, we will read again this text of Titus chapter 3 verses 4 to 7. The Apostle Paul writes this to Titus there on the island of Crete, chapter 3, verse 4. But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us. Not on the basis of deeds, which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. Whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Father in heaven, we thank you for this text. We thank you for your Holy Spirit and all that we will learn today and in the couple of weeks to follow. May you help us to have just good understanding. May you help me in the proper interpretation and presenting of this doctrine of the Holy Spirit. And may, Lord, you convict our hearts greatly of how to uh, apply these doctrines to our lives. We pray this in your Son, Jesus' name. Amen. One of the reasons that I wanted to embark on the study of the Holy Spirit is because I do believe that the Holy Spirit and the doctrine surrounding the Holy Spirit is so often misunderstood, misappropriated, misapplied, and frankly greatly abused. We see this especially in what I will deem the extreme charismatic movement 
I've mentioned before Bethel Church up in Redding, California, and I continue to use them often as an illustration because it was stuff that I saw firsthand uh, having lived up in that neck of the woods and ministering in that neck of the woods. And I have mentioned before uh, its pastor, Bill Johnson, and the church's participation in such things as tongues and healings and new prophetic revelation. They even have a school of ministry where you can learn about such things and how to practice such things and utilize such things. They would say all compliments of the Holy Spirit. This church and others like them also participate in, I have to say, supposed or put in quotes, workings of the Holy Spirit. In the realm of such crazy things, and maybe you've heard of some of these things, maybe you haven't. Fire tunnels, toking the Holy Spirit. Um, And it sounds like what it sounds like. Grave sucking. And even things like resurrecting the dead. Again, supposedly by the power of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to elaborate some more on those things uh, two messages from now. All right, So I'm not going to do that right here, right now. You can put those into your internet and you know, see what's happening uh, if you can't stand it until then. Needless to say, this is it's, it's abuse of the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Flat out wrong, and in many cases, completely heretical. And again, we'll elaborate on some of those just a few weeks from now. Now, there's a flip side to this as well. The flip side, kind of with the extreme charismatic movement on one side, the flip side is that in sometimes more conservative, Bible-believing churches, in an effort to not go down the path of the extreme charismatics, seeking to use the Holy Spirit in ways that the the Bible doesn't support, then these more conservative churches will sometimes shy away from the Holy Spirit altogether. Or they don't allow Him to be and do what the Bible does teach about the Spirit. In essence, some of these churches deny much of the work of the Holy Spirit, even suppressing and stifling the Spirit. Some other errors that people make about the Holy Spirit are to deny the Holy Spirit's personhood, or to deny His divinity, or deny that He is part of the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. Same in essence, different in function. Some people don't understand correctly the gifts of the Holy Spirit and believe that all the gifts back in Jesus and Paul's day are still absolutely in use today, including those tongues and healings and miracles and prophetic utterances, while others err in denying the gifts of the Spirit for the purpose of ministry. Some churches and people err by teaching that the Holy Spirit is received in stages beginning with conversion and progressing through sanctification. They would say that a sign of a second anointing of the Holy Spirit is when somebody would then be given the gift of tongues. There are some extreme movements that would say that you 
have to have this second anointing of the Spirit or you are not saved. It is also an error when someone attributes something to the Holy Spirit that is indeed not of the Spirit. Case in point is when the Pharisees and scribes accused Jesus of being uh, possessed by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons, and casting out demons by Beelzebul's power instead of casting them out by way of the Holy Spirit's power. Now the opposite is also true when something is of the Holy Spirit but then is denied by men. This often goes back to those more conservative churches Again, in an effort to not abuse the Holy Spirit the way that the extreme charismatics do. And lastly, there's just flat out a lot of wondering about the Holy Spirit. And I think especially, again, some of the differences in how the Holy Spirit operated in the Old Testament and how the Holy Spirit functioned then versus, say, the New Testament or in the life of us on this side of the cross as believers. There are plenty of other things that we might consider. But suffice it to say, again, I believe that there is much about the Holy Spirit that is just flat out misunderstood, misappropriated. And it's my desire to present to you just the best biblical understanding of the Holy Spirit that we possibly can just in these next three weeks. And as I'm starting to prepare these these lessons, these studies, these messages, I'm already like, we we need another week, and we need another week, and we need another week. But I think we can can accomplish much in these uh, next few weeks. So first off, I I want to give you just a a short historical overview of the Holy Spirit, uh, kind of in the understanding or life of the church. So before we jump into the deity and person of the Spirit, I'm going to give you this survey, this historical understanding Uh, This will help us as we seek to understand the Holy Spirit even in our contemporary setting. Theologian Miller J. Erickson in his book Christian Theology has been extremely helpful in this uh, section on the Holy Spirit. Now what most often brings a, a deeper and better understanding of doctrines throughout church history is when some of those doctrines have been challenged from what has been kind of the the normal understanding of those doctrines. And this is especially true of the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. In the earliest days of the church, the Holy Spirit was basically understood as as the force behind the Word of God. The the force and power behind the writing of the Word of God. uh, The Bible. and, And obviously through human Authors, of course, and this was um, understood by people like Origen and Philo and Athenagoras and and Augustine. Then we we move into the second century, and uh, we see church fathers grappling now more with the divinity of the Holy Spirit, with people like Clement of Rome coming down actually solidly with a biblical understanding of the Trinity, while others like um, Paul of Samosata, Irenaeus, and Origen again, taking some, some different views, such as the Holy Spirit being the grace of God, or the divine wisdom, and even being a created being respectively. A more full understanding of the deity of the Holy Spirit came out of some of the later councils 
and dialogues of the 4th and 5th centuries concerning the nature of Christ. Once they started putting together the, the doctrines of the nature of Christ, that then helped them to understand better some of the doctrines of the Holy Spirit. It makes sense as the deity of the Spirit is in a sense contained within that of the deity of the Son. You understand the deity of the Son, it helps you understand the deity of the Spirit. In the fourth century, there were some groups who believed the Spirit to, again, be a created being, a created Spirit along the lines of angels, even the highest ranking angel. But it was uh, Church Father Athanasius who insisted that the Holy Spirit was fully divine and of the same substance as the Father and the Son. One of the more radical groups were uh, the Macedonians, or as they were also called, the Pneumotomachians, which means spirit fighters. Spirit fighters who opposed the deity of the spirit with church uh, father Basil coming to the spirit's defense. Then you kind of enter in some of these early charismatics Montanus was an early charismatic who believed the Holy Spirit spoke through him, even with prophecy and tongues. He preached strict moral living and counted Tertullian as one of his converts. We'll fast forward a little bit to the medieval period. The medieval period saw an argument arise as to whether the Holy Spirit proceeded from only the Father, or more correctly, from both the Father and the Son, This became a dividing point between East and West, with Western churches correctly including the Latin word filioque, which literally means, and the Son, into creeds like the Nicene Creed by the 9th century. Of course, last week we just kind of started to scratch the surface with that time period known as the Reformation of the 16th century. But lo and behold, there were not any real major issues concerning the doctrine of the Holy Spirit during this time. Rather, what you start to see happen are elaborations or refinings of the doctrine of the Holy Spirit by the likes of Luther, who taught the Holy Spirit's infusion of love into the heart of a believer, while John Calvin emphasized the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to the writing of Scripture, and therefore the Scripture's authority over all else, including the Roman Catholic Church and even over the reasoning of man. We jump ahead a little little further, and we hit the 18th century, and John Wesley, John Wesley emphasized the Holy Spirit's work in sanctification, but primarily in a second working of the Spirit that would be similar to some of the, the views of later Pentecostalists. During the 18th and 19th centuries, the work of the Holy Spirit was somewhat neglected as belief took more of a front seat to experience also during this time was the rise of what we call rationalism or human reason which said that god should only be understood through what could be established by rational proof in other words general revelation what nature reveals about god and what nature doesn't reveal is well frankly most of the doctrine of the holy spirit During this period, God was seen as much more separate from man. Of course, we would understand that as 
theism. Another movement of this period was romanticism. It's kind of the opposite. This stressed feelings over belief, the spiritual over the intellectual. And because of this, doctrines tended to just kind of go by the wayside. However, this didn't preclude American revivals, which had an emphasis on repentance and conversion, both of which are certainly brought on by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, in these circles, the Holy Spirit was especially emphasized. Cut to turn of the 20th century, Topeka, Kansas, when Bible teacher Charles Parham and his students decided that the Bible taught a second anointing or baptism of the Holy Spirit after conversion. And in 1901, he laid hands on a student, Agnes Osman, who by her own testimony claimed that the Holy Spirit fell upon her and she prayed successively in several tongues unknown to her. Many believe this to be the beginning of the modern Pentecostal movement with the larger outbreak occurring where? Right here, Los Angeles, at the Azusa Street meetings of holiness preacher William J. Seymour. For many years, the Pentecostal movement was a just a really a kind of a small, quiet slice of mainline evangelical denominations. It's also interesting to note that most of the participants at that time were from lower socioeconomic classes. This began to change in the early 1950s as Episcopal, Lutheran, and even some Catholic churches began to participate in what they believed to be special manifestations of the Holy Spirit, especially in regard to tongues. This constituted a new type of Pentecostalism known as Neo-Pentecostalism, or as is much more commonly known today, the Charismatic Church, which, interestingly enough, draws most of its people from middle and upper middle classes. Other differences are that the old Pentecostalists most often practiced their gifts corporately, whereas the Neo-Pentecostalists, the New Charismatics, tend to speak their tongues during private times of prayer. Finally, when the 1980s arrived, so did the third wave movement, referring to the third wave of the Pentecostal Charismatic movement. Third wave Charismatics put even more emphasis on miracles, especially gifts of healing and prophecy, new revelation. This began right here again in Los Angeles, uh, more um, more. Uh, uh, specifically in Pasadena at Fuller Seminary School of World Mission, when Professor John Wimber taught a class on signs and wonders. This movement added Calvary Chapel of Costa Mesa, Pastor Ken Gullickson, and took institutional form in the network of churches known as the Vineyard. The Vineyard. This movement spread to a revival up in Toronto, Ontario, known as the Toronto blessing. And one last movement that I would draw your attention to is the New Apostolic Reformation, NAR, which is what churches like Bethel up in Reading are a part of. 
They started amongst Pentecostal and Charismatic churches in the late 1990s and advocate following present-day apostles and prophets, people like Bill Johnson, with an emphasis on what they call dominionism, which is the idea that the world has been under the influence of Satan since the fall of man and that it is Christians who have the authority as well as the duty to reclaim the land for God through these apostles and through these kinds of churches. Of course, they participate in supposed supernatural signs, wonders, and revelation. So this brings us to our, our second point, and we're going to get into the scripture here now. In fact, we're going we're to be covering a lot of scriptures um, in this study. And I, I will give you times where I will say, please turn to and, and wait for you to get there. And other times where I'll just be kind of popping them out. And if you're a note taker, you can write them down and, and get back to them a little bit uh, later. But our second point here that we want to focus on that I think is important in kind of this, this, this uh, overview and introduction with the Holy Spirit is the deity of the Holy Spirit. The deity of the Holy Spirit. Because as we said, that is a, a, a place where people commonly can Air. First off, let us just be quickly reminded of some of what we learned a couple of weeks ago when we talked about this doctrine of the Holy Spirit pertaining to salvation. And I mentioned that the Hebrew word for spirit is ruach, which at its core simply means breath, it means wind, or it means spirit. The Greek equivalent is pneuma, and in the context of spirit, They both refer to the spirit of the living, breathing being, right? That would be all of us dwelling in the life of men and animals. And of course, it can refer also to the invisible, unseen spirit. And even where God is concerned, the unseen substance of God, as John states in John 4, 24, God is spirit. Sinclair Ferguson, in his book on the Holy Spirit, called The Holy Spirit, he writes this, The dominant idea of Ruach in the Old Testament is that of power. The parallelism in Micah 3.8 well illustrates this, But as for me, I am filled with the power, with the Spirit of the Lord. End quote. Um, Ferguson uh, continues, Ruach does not connote the idea of divine immateriality, spirit versus matter. Although doubtless that is implied in the general biblical perspective, the emphasis is rather on God's or the Spirit's overwhelming energy. Indeed, one might speak of the violence of God. Divine Spirit thus denotes the energy of life in God. End quote. I think that's well said. This is, of course, also true of pneuma, the Greek, in the New Testament. But what we especially see change, just to kind of tip our hand a little bit from from old to new, which we'll get to next week, is the personal nature of the Spirit, the personal deity of the Holy Spirit, as the Holy Spirit carries out the will of the Father through the Son, even then through the lives of those who have put their faith in Christ. 
So with this, the first question that I want us to pose is how do we know the Holy Spirit is divine? Do we just assume that? We just because, well, he has his name, the Holy Spirit. Um, again, Millard Erickson comments, quote, It might be well said that the deity of the Father is simply assumed in the scriptures, that of the Son is affirmed and argued, while that of the Holy Spirit must be inferred from various indirect statements found in Scripture, end quote. So let's look at some of these Scriptures and see what we can deduce about the divinity of the Spirit. With that, turn to Psalm chapter 51. Psalm 51 and verse 11. It says right there at the beginning of this psalm, and this is part of Holy Scripture, for the choir director, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Wouldn't it be great if in every psalm we had that cool description, you know, just to know exactly when it was and who's written in it and what's going on in this case. It gives us context right there. So David prayed to God the Father, saying this, In Psalm 51, verse 11, Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. So this Hebrew word for holy is kadesh. It means consecrated, sacred, separate, holy. So the Holy Spirit here, we see in this short but sweet text, belongs to or is part of God the Father. He is directly associated with God the Father. All right, turn to Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5. You're going to be ready to do one of those uh, Bible uh, verse, you know, speed things when we're done here. Acts chapter 5, beginning in verse 3. This is when Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, promising to give the proceeds to the Lord, but they kept back a piece of the sale for themselves. And we read this in Acts 5, verse 3. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? And if you like to make marks or, you know, in your Bible, you could underline Holy Spirit. And to keep back some of the price of the land. Verse 4, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed, conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Isn't that interesting? Earlier on, he says, you have lied to the Holy Spirit. And a couple of verses later, you have lied to God. Paul is clearly associating the Holy Spirit with God the Father. And not just associating, but using the Holy Spirit and God interchangeably. He does the same in 2 Corinthians 3, verses 17 to 18, where Paul uses three phrases interchangeably. He uses the Lord is the Spirit, the Spirit of the Lord, and finally referring to both as one and the same, the Lord, comma, the Spirit. 
And in these verses, we then see divine names. Divine names given to the Holy Spirit, namely God and the Lord. All right? Next, we see divine attributes given to the Holy Spirit. Turn to Psalm 139. It's going to be jumping all over the place. Psalm 139. I'm having you jump around so much because I, I, I don't just want you to hear me say it. I want you to see it. I want you to see it right there in the scripture in black and white. Psalm 139, verses 7 and 8. Again, we hear from David. When David asks this rhetorical question, Psalm 139, verse 7, he's talking to God, he's praying to God, where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. So I want you to think about it. What attribute of God is also ascribed to the Holy Spirit? Omnipresence. Exactly. I heard it. Good. As God is everywhere, so the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is everywhere. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Beginning in verse 10. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, here Paul is speaking of the wisdom of men versus the wisdom of God when he says, 1 Corinthians 2 verse 10, For to us God revealed them through the Spirit. And what he's referring to there, friends, is is the truths of the gospel. He revealed the truths of the gospel, right, through the Spirit, capital S, meaning Holy Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the Spirit of the man, which is in him, and that's little s spirit at this point. Even so... The thoughts of God, no one knows except who? The Spirit of God. Huh. This sure then sounds like with those verses from Psalm 139, the uh, attribute of what? Omniscience. All-knowing. The Holy Spirit, like God the Father, knows all. If we turn to Luke chapter 1, verse 35, you don't have to do that. But you would see that the Holy Spirit, that's where the Holy Spirit comes upon, the Virgin Mary. And the Holy Spirit is equated with the power of the Most High, overshadowing Mary, showing us that the Holy Spirit is also omnipotent, all-powerful. We could also see that from Romans 15 and verse 19. We have Hebrews 9 and verse 14, which teaches us that the Spirit is referred to as the eternal Spirit. And so what we see from these texts is that the Spirit also has divine attributes, divine characteristics. Now thirdly, I want you to think about phrases like Genesis 1 and verse 2. You might remember that where it says, it's talking about creation, and it says the Spirit of God was moving 
moving over the surface of the waters. Or Job 33 and verse 4 where Elihu declares, The Spirit of God has made me. Or John 3 and verse 6 where Jesus speaks to Nicodemus about being born of the Spirit. And in our recent Titus text, we learned that the Holy Spirit does what? Washes, regenerates, renews. We see in other places that the Holy Spirit convicts of sin. In John 16, 8 to 11, the Holy Spirit changes human hearts. In Matthew 19 and verse 26, in 1 Peter 1 and verse 2, it tells us that the Holy Spirit sanctifies us. In addition, Scripture is given through the Holy Spirit, 2 Timothy 3, 16. Turn to Romans 8, verse 11. Romans chapter 8. Back up a book there if you're still in 1 Corinthians. Romans 8, verse 11. Here Paul is talking about the differences between living in the flesh versus living in the Spirit. And he writes this in Romans 8, verse 11. But if the Spirit of Him, that's capital S, right? Capital H. The Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead, of course referring to God the Father, will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit, who dwells in you. In other words, the Holy Spirit participated in raising Jesus from the dead and will also participate in raising you from the dead. So what we see here with these texts that I've just taken you through is the Holy Spirit performing divine works. And we'll come back to some of those uh, texts uh, in uh, another couple of weeks. There's something else that uh, we see that the Holy Spirit shows, where the Holy Spirit shows us his divinity, in that he speaks for God as being God. Go ahead and turn to 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel chapter 23. So we're going to go way back there to the Old Testament. Second Samuel, after First Samuel, obviously, and before First Kings. Second Samuel, chapter twenty-three. We want to look at verses one to three. Second Samuel twenty-three, beginning in verse one. Now these are the last words of David. David, the son of Jesse, declares, The man who is raised on high declares, The anointed of God, the God of Jacob, and the sweet psalmist of Israel. Now here's the declaration. The Spirit of the Lord spoke by me, and his word was on my tongue. The God of Israel said... And he continues, the rock of Israel spoke to me, he who rules over men righteously, he who rules in the fear of God, and he continues on. 
Did you get that? Did you get that? Right? The anointed of God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel, the spirit of the Lord spoke by me. And then he goes and references the God of Israel said. So we see the Holy Spirit being again equated and speaking for as speaking, speaking as God, God the Father. So with these texts, we, we see here the Holy Spirit speaking the divine words of God. So I think at, at this point we could, we could include this little uh, ditty that I'm sure most of you are familiar with. If it walks like a duck and it swims like a duck and it quacks like a duck, what do you think it is? It's a duck. Between his divine names, his divine attributes, his divine works, his divine words, it is clear that the Holy Spirit is indeed fully divine. He is deity. And, you know, this is a scratching of the surface in some ways, really, with with, uh, this understanding of the Holy Spirit being deity, being fully divine. Now, along with that, we could also come to the conclusion that he is not just divine, but that he is divinely God. He is divinely God. And yes, this speaks to now this doctrine of the Trinity. How God has chosen to manifest himself in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, being again of the same essence, yet distinct in their personhood and roles, and yet comprising one God. And this fact of God being one is also important to remember. And we see it from texts like the Shema of Deuteronomy 6 and verse 4. You might be familiar with it. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is two, three, four. Exactly. One. One. Or or Isaiah 45 and verse 5. I am the Lord and there is No other besides me, there is no God. And in uh, Isaiah 46 and verse 9, where he says, For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me. How many gods? One God. One God. And yet we have these texts that, that speak of God as us. Right? Genesis 126. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And in chapter 3, verse 22, then the Lord God said, Behold, the man is becoming, has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And Genesis 11, and verse 7, Come, let us go down and therefore confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. All this to say, one God, three persons, right? That's the us. One God, three persons. Now, two weeks ago, uh, 1 Corinthians 3.16, uh, I, I use that to, to show you that the Father and the Holy Spirit are one and the same. Um, we could also look to John chapter 10, verses 30 to 33, to see that the Father and the Son are also one and the same. We could go to 2 Corinthians 3.17 to 18, Romans 8.9, to see that the Son and the Spirit are one and the same. Again, all of these to demonstrate one God, three persons. Furthermore, we see that the Holy Spirit is equally associated with God 
the Father and God the Son. We have that classic text of Matthew 28, 18 to 19. And Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in, and we had this the last couple of weeks with our baptisms, right? Baptizing them in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, right, and the Holy Spirit. Jesus himself putting those three on an equal playing field. We see the same at the end of 2 Corinthians 13 and verse 14 where Paul writes, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. There we see that distinction of the three people, um, but in equal association, but with different purposes, different roles that they are playing. And there are other texts where the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all mentioned together. Places like Romans 8 and verse 9, 2 Corinthians 3 verse 3, Titus 3 verses 4 to 6. Puritan Thomas Watson had this to say, quote, our narrow thoughts can no more comprehend the Trinity in unity than a nutshell will hold all the water in the sea. Let me shadow it out by a similitude. In the body of the sun, there are the substance of the sun, the beams and the heat. The beams are begotten of the sun. The heat proceeds both from the sun and the beams. But these three, though different, are not divided. They all three make but one Son. So in the blessed Trinity, the Son is begotten of the Father. The Holy Ghost proceeds from both. Yet though they are three distinct persons, they are but one God. End quote. Let's lastly this morning look at the personality of the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> the personality of of the Holy Spirit. Now, as we've already discussed, the Holy Spirit's divine attributes, let us consider some of the other characteristics of the Holy Spirit by way of his personality. For that, we're going to turn back to what we read earlier with Pastor Brock, and that's John 14. John 14. I know he's. Well, he is a pastor. He's always going to be Pastor Brock to most of us, right? So, <laughs> amen indeed. John 14. John 14 and verse 16. And again, Jesus, just like Brock said, with his disciples, upper room, night before his crucifixion. And he, just, he gives them a tremendous promise. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. That he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth. Whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. But you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. Skip over to chapter 16 and verse 7. 16 and verse 7. Where Jesus also says, but I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. 
Now, there is so much here, and we'll be most likely coming back to these texts uh, even next week. But suffice it today for us to, to simply see some of the aspects of personality of the Spirit in this text. Notice that the Holy Spirit is given a gender. This is in the masculine pronouns of he and him. Not she, not it. This is not the shack. God is not portrayed as a woman. This is the word of God that tells us that the Holy Spirit, though spirit, is still identified as being a person and being a specifically male person. We call this anthropomorphism. And it's where God reveals himself to have human traits or characteristics, right? Now, also a part of his personality from this text is the fact that he is described by the term paraclete, right? Paracleto. And we've had this many times in our previous studies. And it can mean helper and comforter and encourager and advocate. And it's noteworthy that when Jesus says the Father will give you another helper, that word another means of the same kind. And as well, he is also the spirit of truth. The spirit of truth. These are characteristics of his personhood. Look down at verse 13 of John 16. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, there's another anthropomorphism, right? He hears, he will speak anthropomorphism and he will disclose to you what is to come so the spirit guides and hears and speaks and discloses or shares look at verse 14 he will glorify me for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you that's another characteristic the fact that he has the ability to bring glory or to glorify uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn to Isaiah 11. Isaiah chapter 11. It's a classic messianic text. It's about Jesus. And it's about the righteous reign of the branch. Capital B, Jesus, right? So Isaiah 11 and verse 1, then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and strength, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So, you know, what do we see here about the Spirit that demonstrates his personality, what we see, he has wisdom, he has understanding, he has counsel, he has strength, he has knowledge, he has the fear of the Lord. In other words, we could say, in summary, that the Holy Spirit is an intelligent being. In Romans 8, verse 14, and then in verse 26, we see that the Holy Spirit leads believers, he helps with our weakness, and even intercedes for us with his own groanings when we do not pray as we should. 
And in 2 Corinthians 12 and verse 11, Paul is speaking of the gifts given to men by the Holy Spirit when he writes, but one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as he, the Spirit, wills. So with these, we also understand the Holy Spirit to have a will. Back in Isaiah 63 and verse 10, the prophet is recounting the goodness of God and all he has done for Israel, including being their savior. And yet in verse 10, he says, but they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. This might make you think of Ephesians 4 in verse 32 when Paul admonishes, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. So yes, the Holy Spirit can experience grief, especially over our sin. In Romans 15 and verse 30, Paul says, now I urge you, brethren, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God for me. So again, here now, not again, but here we see we have love and we have grief and we understand the Holy Spirit has emotions. So I think these three, we could all agree, are kind of often the the telltale signs of personhood when somebody has intelligence, they have a will, and they have emotions it's interesting because we also see in scripture that the holy spirit can display his personality in a passive way a passive way back in acts 5 we remember that we can lie to the spirit right in first thessalonians five nineteen, we can quench the spirit in acts 7 and verse 51 it says that we can resist the spirit and matthew 12 31 32 tells us that people can Speak against and blaspheme the Spirit, to which these signs will not be forgiven them. But again, it's his personality in a passive way as to the different things that can happen to him. Now, just being linked so closely with other personal agents, such as the Father and the Son, as we looked at earlier, also shows personality. He's also linked with humans as well, as we will learn and find out about his indwelling of us, his living and abiding in us. And also in Acts 15 and verse 28, when the apostles and elders in Jerusalem wrote to other believers saying, for it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these essentials. So again, These texts show uh, that the Holy Spirit possesses some of the same characteristics and traits found in human personalities. All of this to say the Holy Spirit, friends, is not some kind of impersonal force, but rather a living being with a personality, characteristics, attributes of a divine nature. Again, this due to the fact that the Holy Spirit is indeed God as fully as God the Father, as fully as God the Son. Thomas Watson again says this, Here is a great deep, the Father God, the Son of God, the Holy Ghost, yet not three gods, but one God. 
the three persons in the Blessed Trinity are distinguished but not divided. Three substances but one essence. This is a divine riddle where one makes three and three make one. End quote. So what? What, 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 what is the application for us? What, what is the, the implications for us today based on, on what we have learned here this morning? I would say this to you. The Holy Spirit is indeed someone for you and I to have a relationship with. We need to have this relationship. We are promised this relationship. It is God's intended purpose, plan, and will for us to be in relationship with the Holy Spirit. And of course that relationship though starts, it starts with the Holy Spirit's work, going back to that Titus passage that we read earlier in 3, of salvation. That the Holy Spirit would first save us. That he would wash us, regenerate us, that he would um, renew us. That he would turn the light bulb on, that he would lift the the blinders, that the, he'd cause the scales to fall off. He would draw us to God and the gospel of Jesus Christ that we then would believe, that we would have faith, that we would trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and the work he did on that cross, dying in our place, taking our sin upon himself, that we would be washed, or that we would be made white as snow, that we would be cleansed completely, that we would be justified in God's eyes, when God would, the Father would look at us, he wouldn't see our sin, he would see the blood of Christ. And not just that he died, but that he was put into the grave and three days later raised from the dead. Again, by the Holy Spirit. That we too would know that yes, our salvation is sure, that we too will have eternal life, that the Holy Spirit will indeed raise us from the dead because he raised Christ from the dead. That's where it starts. And then, and we'll get into it again next week, or actually the week after, the Holy Spirit coming to live and dwell. At that moment of salvation, the Holy Spirit is with us, in us, dwelling, abiding in us. And, and that, is, that is then that relationship that now continues on with us and the Holy Spirit as he becomes, even in a deeper, greater way, our paraclete. Secondly, because of the gospel, it's the Holy Spirit who brings the triune God close to us. Again, this goes back to the living and dwelling in us as our paraclete, the one who comes alongside of us, the Dax is our our helper, advocate, and friend, God through the, the Spirit is more close to us now than at the incarnation. We know how important the incarnation was in Christ coming, but now we have his very Spirit inside of us. And thirdly, in his divinity, the Holy Spirit should be worshipped, honored, praised as the Father, as the Son are worshipped because again in essence they are all three god when we worship god we're worshiping the three therefore the holy spirit should be given honor respect glory exaltation we should never never think of the the spirit as being inferior or less than the father and the son though at times his role may be subordinate to both of them. 
So, again, have that relationship with the Spirit that starts with your relationship with Christ. Know and trust that then part of that relationship or that relationship now flourishes because we have the Holy Spirit living and dwelling in us. And make sure that when we are worshiping, yes, and we have times in our songs where we mention God the Father, or we're mentioning the Son or the Spirit, right? But as far as we're worshiping the one God, the triune God, that we give the Holy Spirit the, uh, the honor, respect, glory, exaltation, worship that he deserves. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this. Wow, we, <laughs> we just thank you for the Holy Spirit. We thank you for your spirit, the spirit of Christ, and all that the Holy Spirit is, who he is, what he does, the fact that he is indeed divine, the fact that he is indeed God, the fact that he is indeed personal, the fact that he has these, a personality and personal characteristics even that we can identify with, and we just thank you and praise you for your spirit. I pray, Lord, for anyone here that needs to know Christ as their Savior and Lord, that they would pray a prayer of repentance even right now, Father. And that they would put their faith and hope and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and what he accomplished on the cross. Pray for their, the indwelling of the Spirit then in them. And Lord, that, that we would give the proper worship, glory, honor, and praise to your Spirit. We pray this in your Son, Jesus' name. Amen. Scripture quotations taken from the New American Standard Bible. Copyright by the Lockman Foundation.